0: I did want to say, man, that Old Testament reading was a hard reading. <laughs> Actually, did such a good job with all those names. It was like she knew them all. Yeah, she knew them so well. Good job. I recently came across the following passage from David Foster Wallace's novel Infinite Jest, a novel that, among other things, explores the reality of addiction. And there, there are several interwoven narratives in the book one of which includes residents of the Boston area, in fact, who hit rock bottom through, through substance abuse, and then who are also part of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous and N.A. Narcotics Anonymous. And the following is a description of, from this narrative of what it's like to hit rock bottom through substance abuse. You are, as they say, finished. You cannot get drunk. You cannot get sober. You cannot get high, and you cannot get straight. You are behind bars. You are in a cage and can only see bars in every direction. You are in the kind of a hell of a mess that either ends lives or turns them around. You are at the fork in the road that Boston, AA, calls your bottom. Though so the term is misleading because everybody here agrees, it's more like someplace very high and unsupported. You're on the edge of something tall and leaning out way forward. What really stood out to me was the sentence you're behind bars, you're in a cage, you can only see bars in every direction. That's, that's what addiction is like. It's like a cage that shrinks your life, constricts your life to a substance and imprisons you so that you are unable to get out without help. That's, that's the nature of it. What the other narratives in the book explore, though, is how this addictive prison plays out in other, more normal ways, non-substance ways. So when people in the book watch television and get addicted to entertainment uh, on the screen, when people get addicted to other normal things like just playing tennis and the obsession people have about it. Wallace's conviction, if you hear him in his talks, what he said outside of his books is that he thinks, he was, he was convinced, he's no longer alive. Uh, we are all addicts. In one way or another. And we're all worshipers, and we typically are addicts to what we worship. Well, this is not so different from Paul's conviction in his letter to the Roman church. If you pay attention, Paul's conviction is that we have all worshiped something created instead of worshiping our Creator. We have all done that. And because of that, he has given us over to come, he has given us over to sin, over to the power of sin. The addiction of sin. That's what we're, what we're gonna see. If we could go to the next slide. In Romans chapter three, verse nine, Paul wrote, under the inspiration of the Spirit, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. That's one of Paul's main points in these first three chapters, in case you miss it. Paul is trying to argue there are no exceptions to this. This divine verdict of God on the human race. Even the Jews, he wants to say in this section, who had the advantage of being given the word of God, the law of God, who held this in their hands, that revealed the way, God's way to live, that even promised and pointed to the gospel, even they are under the power of sin. They did not escape this divine verdict. And to back his claim, Paul cites numerous Old Testament passages, mostly just from the Psalms, Again, words from the very scriptures that are in their hands. He's saying back to them, as it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Getting the point, I think. He's quoting psalm after psalm. He keeps going in this, uh, he's quoting poetry in a poetic fashion. Paul is, is way more poetic than I think people give him credit for. But his point is, there's no exception. Everyone has been given over to the power of sin. Everybody knows what it's like to be addicted to sin to some degree, if we're honest in our heart of hearts. He ends by saying, those who are under the law, or the the scriptures speak to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced. The whole world, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, may be held accountable to God. For no human will be justified before him by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When I was a a new Christian, I remember my pastor saying, the law of God in the Old Testament is like a mirror. And when you look at it, it shows your reflection and it shows you where you're dirty. It shows you where you are addicted to sin, where your idolatry is. Through the law comes the knowledge, the revelation of sin. That's one of its purposes. But a mirror can't clean you. So if you take it off the wall and you try to rub off that dirt, it doesn't work. That was not the purpose of the law. It reveals your sin, but it doesn't clean you of your sin. It doesn't justify you before him. No human will be justified before him by deeds prescribed in the law. How do we get justified? That will be next week. How we are forgiven, how we are cleansed, how we are declared right, made right, before God. That's next week. But this week we're going to consider a question Paul asks in this passage we heard this morning from Romans. And this is going to require some extra brain power from you this morning. <laughs> I'm going to give you some scriptures, a number of scriptures, but I think you're up for it. <laughs> I think a lot of you. This is a, this is part this question is part of a series of questions Paul asks that he anticipates people are going to ask him when he starts talking about this part of the gospel. Because probably these are the questions that came up as he shared this with different people. So if we go to the the next slide. He first asks, what advantage does the Jew have? The ethnic Jew. Because he had just finished saying that a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the written code. The Holy Spirit writes the law of God on our hearts. That's how he talks about being a Christian, a believer in Jesus, in other letters. Such a person, he says, receives praise not from humans but from God. So what's the advantage of being a Jew, an ethnic Jew? And he responds, much in every way. And he doesn't give all the much here, just gives one quick answer. Example that the Jews, these were the people who were given the very oracles, the words of God. That's no small thing. That's a special thing. But just because you're given the word of God doesn't mean you are going to be faithful to it. Just because you're given the gospel as the church doesn't mean you're going to be faithful to it. So if we could go to the next slide. What if some were unfaithful? Will, they, will their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul writes. Even if we are unfaithful, even if we don't keep his word, he is faithful, he is always faithful, he will always keep his word. The gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness, which includes his faithfulness to his promises. We can count on that 100 It's hard for us to imagine someone always keeping their word. (laughs) That's not what we do. So it's hard for us to trust God to do that. Because we project onto him what we do. We don't always keep our word, but he does. He keeps his promises, his promises in the Old Testament of the gospel. To in fact justify the ungodly, the unjust, the unfaithful even. But... If we could go to the next slide. And here's the question we're going to give more attention to. If our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? So this question is concerning something Paul said earlier in chapter 1, what we talked about last week, namely that God's wrath, his righteous anger over our idolatry, is expressed by giving us over to sin, to the power of sin, to a depraved mind, to injustice of every kind. So that is, when we build our life and meaning on something, whether it's a forbidden thing or even a good thing, when we build our life on something more than on God, God says no to that by giving us over to moral chaos in our lives. By giving us a taste of what life is like without God. By just giving us a taste of what life is like without God who orders our desires, who keeps them from getting constricted to something small and pathetic and opens them up to God himself and his ways and his world and his people. So the question becomes then, wait, if God's wrath over idolatry results in us becoming unjust, does that mean God is unjust? And again, Paul, he doesn't go into, you would think he would go into a longer explanation, but he just says, by no means. For how then could God judge the world? Paul's just saying, he made it clear God is the judge of the world, and when he judges, he judges with righteousness, with justice. He's not doing anything wrong. He is not unjust. If we reject our good and just creator, the one who makes things right, we deserve to be given over to what is not right, to moral chaos. But the question persists again. If through the gospel God's untruth or God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged a sinner? That's why I might be held accountable for sin if God's just giving me over to it. And why not say, as some people slander us by saying, let's do evil so good may come. Paul says their judgment is deserved. In other words, what Paul is saying here is when we turn God's just judgment of our idolatry into an excuse now for our sin, or more as an encouragement to sin even more, He's saying we're just giving another illustration of why we deserve God's divine verdict in these chapters. If that's our kind of thinking, it just shows, it just proves Paul's point is what he's trying to say. In this section, Paul is emphasizing the justice of God's wrath. If we reject our creator, the one who orders our lives, we deserve to be given over to disorder. But if you keep reading Romans, Paul also emphasizes the mercy of his wrath. When we turn from God, we live, when we live with God to our backs, either before we become a Christian or if we start doing again as a Christian, when we do that and we're given over to sin and over to the power of sin, we notice the longer we stay there, the more and more it becomes a prison, the more and more bars form in our lives, and the more and more we are unable to get out without help. The more we become, as Paul says in Romans chapter six, a slave to sin. And he describes what that slavery is like at length at the end of Romans seven. So if we could go to the next slide, Romans seven. I am sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. In fact, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The desire to do the good lies close at hand, but not the ability. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I do. Now, if I do not do what I do not want... Sorry, (laughs) it does get confusing when you get addicted to sin. You don't know what's up from down. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but now sin is dwelling within me. That's how much sin captivates us. It's within us, overtaking us. That doesn't sound too different from Wallace's descriptions of addiction An Infinite Jest. When you keep looking at that screen, at things that you shouldn't be looking at. When you keep projecting an image of yourself to people, that isn't true, that's false. That's a lie and you just can't help yourself. When you know you're supposed to be thinking of others and what they need and what God wants and deserves, but you just can't help only thinking about yourself and what you want and you're willing to make moral compromises to get what you want, that what you think you can't be without, and you just can't help yourself. You're stuck. You're imprisoned to sin. That's addiction. That's the sin of addiction. You're captive to the law of sin, which hopefully will cause you to ask a question will hopefully cause you to ask what comes next. If we come to the next screen and say, wretched person I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Hopefully, that experience will cause you to ask that question. There is the mercy of the wrath of God at work. The mercy of being given over to the power of sin, it leads to the imprisonment of sin. A taste of what life is like without God, which then leads us to ask, who will rescue me from this body of death, which then makes us ready for the gospel answer that comes next, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans chapter 11, if we could go to the next slide, verse 32, Paul wrote this, For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. If there's a verse you remember from this morning, remember this verse. If if there's going to be a verse you keep in mind as you read Romans 1, 2, and 3, as you read Romans 6, 7, and 8, as you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, as you read all of Romans, as you read your life and someone else's life, keep this verse in mind. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. That's why God expresses his wrath the way he does in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. Here's the mercy of his judgment at work. How inscrutable are his ways. So God, in his response to the reject, our rejection of him, gives us over to the sin to the power of sin, to the prison of sin, to Romans 7, in order to be merciful to us so that we would get to the point like an AA member where we admit we have a problem. We admit we need help, that we would cry out for help, cry out for help, for the help of the gospel and come to know it as God's almighty power for salvation from every cage that we find ourselves in. so that we would no longer live these constricted lives God never intended us for to live at, so that we could live in the broad place of his presence. The hardest step is always the first step, admitting you have that problem, admitting you need help, the help of the gospel. And that can be true before you become a Christian, And that can be true after becoming a Christian, maybe especially after becoming a Christian, because you think, I, of all people, should know better. But after a time when you've started to build your life around something and made that more significant than God, and that could be a substance, that can be a sexual sin, a forbidden thing, a good thing, a gift from God that you just become obsessed about. You build your life around, and the signs of addiction are rising. This obsession, this anger, this uncontrolled anger towards anyone who gets in the way of that. Moral compromises start surfacing. The signs are there, and you find a hard time admitting it, that this is happening. Well, if that is you, Remember what the grace of the gospel is. Some of those definitions we talked about last week, which we're going to continue to talk about in weeks to come. And I'm just going to mention a few briefly here at the end. Remember that the grace of the good news is incongruous. It's for the guilty. It's for the ones in the cages who can only see bars in every direction. The gospel is for you there. so that you see that fork in the road where you can turn your life around. You can see the mercy of God right there. God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he can have mercy on you in this very moment. So that you would cry out for that mercy, so that you would know it as superabundant, as excessive, as wherever sin is abounding in your life, the grace of God is abounding more. It is excessive, and it is efficacious. It is power. It is God's almighty power for salvation, for anyone who hears it and trusts it, lives by it. It's by that gospel you'll be freed from that cage that you only see bars in every direction, and you'll be free to live in the broad place, of God's presence, where he made you to be, he redeemed you to be. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for anyone here who is hearing this and who is stuck, who knows this is about them or maybe doesn't want to admit this is about them. Give them the courage, the strength to admit it, to cry out for help to your people and to cry out to help for you to come with your good news that is powerful, more powerful than anything they are feeling. That they would know your gospel as the power for salvation that liberates us for living in the broad place of your presence. Hear us and hear us on behalf of those who are even not willing to pray it yet. In Jesus, we do pray. Amen.